Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast with Aaron Holt, Functional Nutritionist. I work with clients on the seacoast of New Hampshire and virtually all over the world through both private consultations and online nutrition programs. I'm here with my co-host, Kyle Mayorana, registered dietitian of Root Down Nutrition based in Asheville, North Carolina. We are both board-certified integrative and functional nutritionists. This means we dive deep with people to get to the root cause of their health issues. In this podcast, we will address all things health, food, and nutrition, discussing our research, clinical experience, and life experience. Please keep in mind our disclaimer, this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or medical treatment. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Okay, guys, it's Erin and I'm here with Megan Garcia. Um, It's Mercury Retrograde and we are feeling it in full effect. So we have some wonky audio issues going on, but I think we're going to, I think we're going to nail it. So Megan's already been on the show before. She was on episode 10 last year. We talked a lot about feeding babies and toddlers. So be sure to check out that episode. Um, She she dropped quite a bit of knowledge um, during that show. Megan has a background in traditional Chinese medicine, acupuncture, and baby massage. I always say this. She's my go-to on all things baby. If you guys don't follow her on Instagram, start immediately. I'm going to post that in the show notes so you can click on through. And she just has, if you have um, young kiddos, you have to be following Megan because she posts such inspiring food ideas and real food ideas um, along with a lot of different herbs you can use. And she's just, she's just so awesome. So Megan, welcome to the show. It's so great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me again. I love talking to you and interacting with you. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so we have to, it, we, this happened in an interview a couple of weeks ago, but I we have to like pause and unpause. So there's gonna be awkward gaps. It's not because we're awkward with each other. It's just because blame Mercury retrograde. All right, so I put a call out for questions a couple weeks ago and I got a lot in. So we're just gonna do like a call and response here. The first question was from Ava Pauline. She want, I was like, what do you guys wanna know from Megan Garcia? And Ava Pauline said anything about Chinese medicine. So she's listed off immune support, postpartum hair loss, energy. This is obviously such a huge broad topic that we don't have time to pick it apart today. Um, and I can talk a little bit about the postpartum hair loss thing um, after Megan chimes in, but Megan, I'd love to hear, She, she Ava Pauline mentioned energy. So I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts about adaptogens. We get asked about adaptogenic herbs all the time. And I'm wondering if you use them in Chinese medicine and what your thoughts are. So this is a really great question. I was just thinking about this the other day um, and putting some thoughts together about adaptogens. And I had actually just read a article about cultural appropriation and yoga and um and kind of and that's where basically you take this useful good thing from another culture like in the us for example we have like these yoga studios that target you know wealthy white women um that are slender in general and and they that's 
who yoga is marketed to in general and it's sometimes separated from the spiritual side um and so that is seen as a type of cultural appropriation because you're not taking into account the history and the spirituality and you know at the same time there may be um like in the article it says that there may be people who can't attend yoga class who are actually Indian um, and, you know, they're too poor or they just don't, they're not interested in it. They're um, they're they're not who the classes are for. And it's just such an interesting concept. And so when we talk about adaptogens, um, I come from a background very much. Um, so I went to school studying Chinese medicine, but then I also worked at an herb shop called Ron Tea Gardens and he sold Chinese herbs, but he um, marketed them to like people, just general people who didn't necessarily have training in Chinese medicine. And this was back in like the 90s. And then um, in around 2000 or so, um, somebody named Truth Calkins, who used to work at the LA um, tonic bar at Air One, um, he kind of came in, he learned a lot. And then at the tonic bar, we would use single herbs, um, which were tonic herbs. Um, and now we call them adaptogens, but they're actually Chinese tonic herbs. And some of these adaptogens um, with air quotes around them, they also um, have the pinyin name. And the pinyin is kind of like the English word for the Chinese character. So like Hushawu is the pinyin name for Hushawu, um, which is an adaptogen that builds blood. Um, or tonic herb. So I see it as kind of a cultural appropriation situation because what's happening, there are certain companies like Sun Potion or Moon Juice, and these are companies that are very trendy and hipster and very cool. Um, and they take these tonic herbs, aka adaptogens, and they market them and they overprice them and they oversimplify the functions and the actions of the herb. And in Chinese medicine, we generally never give herbs on their own. They're always used in combination with other herbs. There's a king herb, there's an envoy, there's herbs to balance and check the power of the king herb. It's very complex and actually really beautiful. Like this give and take, push and pull in a formula that helps to create balance within the person. And you want to have that because sometimes with a lot of tonic herbs or adaptogens, they can be heavy, cloying, they can be really um, strong. So you want to have balance. Um, so in general, um, while I love the idea of adaptogens, adaptogens and I love that they really introduced um, folks to Chinese medicine, um, I am much more in favor of formulas, which are a complete package of, um, of herbs. Wow, we just went in real deep, real fast. Um, that is such an interesting take on it. Uh, it's funny that you brought up moon juice because just yesterday a good friend of mine was asking about moon juice. Like, I think I, I should be on some adaptogens and I keep seeing moon juice everywhere. What do you think about it? I'm like, I think you're paying for really pretty branding. <laughs> I think they're totally overpriced. But the I feel like adaptogens are so stinking popular because it, it fits the American model of a pill for every ill. And in, in some ways we've just kind of put supplements and herbs in the place of other pills, you know? And I just think that, you know, I've said it a million times, we can't out adaptogen our stressful lifestyles. Like we actually have to address the underlying stress. Um, but most of us are running around not really acknowledging that. We're like, just give me the pill and I'm just going to keep living this crazy paced life. 
Um, so you're talking about um, these herbs used in context. Now, I am so not familiar with Chinese medicine. I respect it deeply. It's I'm just so in awe of it. And I don't I'm, I'm not even remotely trained in any of it. Um, I do know this is kind of a timely question because I do I did see that your teaching an online seminar workshop, uh, Chinese herbs for babies that is really catered toward immune support and, um, and vaccine that's coming up. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Cause you'll probably go into a lot more detail about this stuff if people are interested. Definitely. So, um, one of the things I talk about a lot on social media is cold snap, um, because it's so accessible. And that's the key thing when it comes to these herbs is ex accessibility. And so, um, with, adaptogens they're very easy to get they're easy to understand i think that's why people gravitate towards them and they can be useful and powerful in certain situations um but um so i talk about cold snap a lot it's an amazing formula that you can pick up at whole foods it's a chinese formula of herbs and um you can also purchase it on amazon uh, and a lot of people love it they take it it works really well and it's to treat like respiratory infection and cold flu symptoms um it's great however there's a lot more that you can do especially with babies when it comes to infection um, there's a lot of fear around whooping cough and measles um, especially because a lot of babies aren't getting vaccinated anymore um, and I have no opinion whatsoever on whether or not you vaccinate your baby. And that is kind of a situation that I see. I see people, parents talking very aggressively on both sides. And I, I just think that it's important to understand that I have actually spoken to parents whose children have regressed after a vaccine. It's a very real thing. And who are we to, if that's your child, um, no one wants to be in that place or that position. So I'm not going to say that I have an opinion until I guess we know more. There's still a lot that we don't know. So my main goal is um, to support the immune system. That's pretty much um, whatever you decide to do. I just want to help you support your immune system. And Chinese herbs are fabulous for that. Um, when it comes to measles, which is really scary, we have herbs for that that are really great that actually help very quickly and very well. Um, whooping cough is another one that can be very scary. Um, let's see, probably about like a year and a half ago, I worked with a baby that was around eight months old and had whooping cough and we used um, Lung Chi Junior. You can get it on, on Amazon. Um, so these are the kind of things I'll talk about in the herb class. And then also like very basic stuff, like a lot of infections, like 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 um, the common cold and flu and 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 an ear infection. Um, generally, antibiotics aren't going to work, um, and so there's not much that you can really do. And Chinese herbs will actually help your baby or your child get through it within the first 24 hours. Usually, if you catch it early. Um, and if you don't catch it early, it'll still shorten the duration of the infection. They're just amazing. They're a lifesaver. So I really want to share this information and, um, and teach parents in a very easy to understand way, the complexity of Chinese herbs, like how deep they go, how far they go, but also make it very, um, easy to understand and use. So I'm going to give very specific things that you can do and, um, a straightforward way to understand the information. 
and I will link to that that class. This is like a must attend. If you're listening to this right now, an absolute must attend. So I think you have two options for viewing Saturday, March 16th or Sunday, March 17th. Is that right, Megan? Yes. And the other thing that I want to say is that sign up now if you can, because what I'm, uh, I've gotten such a great response from this, what I'm planning, and I have a lot more to say too, besides herbs, like there's some things you can do with diet and just some other little things you can do. So I want to turn it into a program and I'm going to raise the price actually, um, uh, when I do that, because it's going to have a lot more content and then it will live on my website. So everyone who gets the class now, they will have automatic access to the full program. When it launches so it's a great time to um hop on that and it's only 47 dollars, so it's a no-brainer and i'm assuming knowing megan she's gonna give you the tools to like build out in uh a like a first aid kit at your own house so you're pretty equipped with um, all the things that you need one thing i want to circle back to you said that antibiotics don't really work for ear infections i want to hear more about if you if you feel like going into more detail i want to hear a little bit more about why that's the case because they're pretty frequently prescribed in fact my daughter was put on uh, antibiotics twice uh, for ear infection infections when she was little it's like the the first line of defense when you go to the doctor. Yeah, um, it's just what the it's just common. Like I guess in the medical world, um, there's been some studies on it. It's, it's just common knowledge that t typically antibiotics don't work, um, and so you only want to use them if you absolutely have to. Um, and generally, it's recommended that you just help to relieve pain rather than do antibiotics because there is the issue of antibiotic resistance which is where microbes adapt to the antibiotic and then it no longer works and in that situation that can be life-threatening um it's very dire people have lost people because of that so it's a really um important topic and i think there's a lot more awareness now about it and so um like in i think the academy the american academy of, of pediatrics they have some articles on it um it just it's just known that they don't generally work too well well good to know um all right before we get to the next question, I don't want to gloss over the fact that this woman is asking about postpartum hair loss. So I just want to touch upon the fact that um, if you are experiencing hair loss, consider uh, postpartum thyroiditis. It's extraordinarily common. I think it's one in 12 women will experience this after giving birth. Um, so if that hair loss is coupled with other symptoms, I would go and get a full thyroid panel done. And we've talked about this, I mean, I think it was the last episode I talked, we've talked about thyroid stuff a lot, but go get your thyroid looked at. Um, so if you're experiencing, I mean, obviously as a new mom, you're gonna be tired, right? But if you're experiencing like f deep, deep fatigue and exhaustion that can't really be explained by lack of sleep, or anxiety, irritability, depression, if your milk supply is suffering, if you have low milk supply, if you have dry skin, feeling cold all the time, uh, what else, muscle and joint pain, carpal tunnel is a big one, or uh, constipation, sluggish bowels, those are all symptoms of hypothyroidism. So if you're experiencing hair loss in conjunction with some of those, definitely get your thyroid tested. Um, and then you even wanna to look to hyperthyroid symptoms, which is kind of swings in the, the pendulum in the other direction. You can still feel anxiety and irritability, but you're also experiencing weight loss in many cases, um, racing heart, heart palpitations, 
loose stools or you're feeling hot or very flushed often. So again, if you're experiencing any of those things in conjunction with the hair loss, then I would really encourage you to go get your thyroid tested because it is so stinking common postpartum and it's just like really not being talked about that much. I think women are just like, doctors are just like, yeah, that's exactly my experience. They're like, yeah, this is this is normal for a new mom. You're just tired, run down. Um, all right, let's bounce to the next question. This is from Lake Cat. And she says, I need to know what Megan thinks about giving gluten, grains, and dairy to toddlers whose parents have autoimmune disorders and or specific food sensitivities. I love this question because uh, it's something that I've sort of struggled with 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 Hattie, who's now almost five, but because I have a severe gluten sensitivity and because I have an autoimmunity, she's been gluten gluten-free for life. It's a decision that I've made based on my own health background. So Megan, would love to hear your your take on it. Um, so I just wrote an article for Whole30 all about this. Uh, although before I jump into that question, I wanted to say something to what you just said earlier, which all these light bulbs were kind of like dinging in my head. Um, when you were talking, which when you were describing hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism. Um, so I do want to encourage, um, along with thyroid panel, um, Chinese medicine in terms of the herbs, it, so what was described in terms of the hypo symptoms, it is very, it sounds like blood deficiency and qi deficiency in Chinese medicine, which is very, very, very common postpartum because, um, during birth you lose a lot of blood and it said in chinese medicine that milk like your breast milk comes from the same fluid as blood so by breastfeeding you're also experiencing that blood loss which can be connected to um hair loss and so that's the hypo symptoms it's very much like a spleen chi deficiency um, blood deficiency kind of issue and spleen chi is a chinese medicine term uh and it just fits together really neatly and what's also interesting is um the hyper symptoms were more of like a yin deficiency which is more it's a deeper deficiency actually and that's um like night sweats trouble sleeping um it's more of the heart palpitations which can also be connected to blood so really nourishing the yin the blood but doing it with a practitioner um that can really customize what you need, maybe along with your thyroid um, panel and maybe some meds if that's what you do. It's just all fits together. And I really like how oftentimes in Chinese medicine, you see a correlation to Western medicine. Those types of things really excite me um, when I'm reading different things and I see how they connect. It's, it's, it's always uh, interesting. So just wanted to say that before I jumped into the other question and i'm going to mute it so that way erin can say something in case she wants to <laughs> um there's a i don't know if you're familiar with him there's a um acupuncturist his name is mark ryan i believe i'm going to link to his book so he does a lot with hashimoto's but he's also trained in chinese medicine he does he does functional medicine he does chinese medicine in the whole book um I can't think of it. It's like on the shelf right behind me. But his whole book is about Hashimoto's um, 
which is the autoimmune condition. And, and we think about it as hypothyroidism, but it actually Hashimoto's can be hypo and hyper, like swings between the two. Um, but he talks about it from all different angles, from a food perspective, from a functional medicine perspective, from a Chinese medicine perspective, all of that, everything you were just talking about, Megan, is in there. So that would be a really cool book for people to check out if you're listening to this and light bulbs are going off. But that's so awesome. And I think it, it's fun to hear it from both perspectives too, and, and because they do blend together. Definitely. That's, I'm going to have to check him out. Um, okay. So the question was about gluten, grains, and dairies to toddlers. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I did talk about this uh, on Whole30. Um, obviously, Whole30 is a restricted diet. Um, and also, if you have an autoimmune disorder, you're probably following AIP or some sort of variation of that. And it can be tricky. And it, so the science tells us that you want to expose your baby to a, a wide range of foods during pregnancy and during your baby's first 12 months. So as a toddler, that window has kind of been missed, um, which I don't know if that's an issue because well, okay, for, for parents who are listening to this and who are in a similar situation and they have a baby, there is there are these little pouches that you can do. They're called Inspired Start, I think, and they have all the allergens in them. So it's basically like a pouch of food with allergen, like um, like nuts and eggs and all, all the things. Uh, and you could do that if you wanted to get that in before 12 months. In this case, we have a toddler, and I feel like for families who eat a really restricted diet to go out of your way when you're already probably centering most of your life around food and what you can eat and can't eat, it's it's a little much, um, especially for parents. And um, I just say go with what you do, uh, and and that's that uh, you're you're it's possible that there is a greater risk for allergies including eczema for your baby and I think that's okay I guess I mean it's it's just what the situation is that you're in I know with my kids we never eat wheat never it's just never in our home because I am so sensitive to it now with other foods that I can't eat we do have them in our house because my husband eats them so I think if there's that dynamic but to say a food is bad or to think a food is bad when maybe you can eat it or your husband can eat it or your partner, then I would, uh, you know, ask yourself if, you, if it's possible that you could be more flexible with it because we know now that having a diet that's full of all the things is actually better and that gluten, well, I don't know what Aaron thinks about this, but gluten is not bad and there's actually enzymes in your or there's bacteria in your gut that produce enzymes to break down those proteins um and it's just really interesting how we kind of turn this food wheat into something that's so bad and i don't think that it really is i think what's happening is that our guts are in a bad place because of all the antibiotics that we've been taking over the decades. And so um, I'm going to mute it because I'm curious what Aaron thinks. Are you worried that I'm freaking out over here? Um, yeah, I mean, it, I, 
you know, there's even a question being raised, is it the gluten or is it the glyphosate in gluten? Is it the glyphosate in wheat? What's really causing the problem? And I think that it's this, this, this is why I haven't even really approached the whole gluten topic on the podcast in a year and a half, because it's the conversation is so multifactorial. Like, I mean, we could spend five days talking about gluten and, and, you know, figuring all of that out. I mean, I think what you're saying is really spot on. Like, first of all, try to introduce your kid to as many foods as possible. If you want to, if you, if you want to prevent food sensitivities, that's kind of what I heard from it. I will link to your, the article that you wrote also in the show notes, but also, you know, don't create fear in sensitivities where it doesn't need to be created. Now I'm like you, Megan, like I'm so, so stinking sensitive to wheat and to gluten that, that we're not, ha we don't, I don't cook it. I don't, you know, it's not in my house. And, and because of my history and because of the fact that, um, I had all of these digestive issues and all of these immune issues my entire life. And they really, a lot of them were stemming from the fact that I was sensitive to gluten. I'm not going to expose my kid to that for a number of different reasons. And I, and, and I'm also of the standpoint that she's not missing out on anything by not eating gluten because all of the, you know, gluten containing foods are, they're not exactly nutrient dense foods. So like, I don't, I don't think I'm doing her a disservice in any way. Um, but we could certainly, you could, we could talk about this from so many different, different points. Yes, uh, that is, that's so true. And I do, so with my kids, I've been flexible with them. They eat it sometimes, especially with family. And I just see what happens. And what I tell them, especially my oldest, I just tell him to watch his body and to look for any signs that, that things aren't, well and um he has a history of um like loose stools so much that it like leaks out kind of um and that usually happens when he eats wheat or some something like a, a bun or a, a like a hot dog or some kind of bready product so i just tell him to watch and the other day he had some pretzels and he seemed fine he told me that he ate them at school um and I just told him to watch his body. And I, I generally don't think it's, I think the stress around food, it starts really, really young. And actually you communicate your own stress around feeding to your baby as a newborn. Your baby's picking up on these things and these cues. And so if you're stressed about your baby crying and so you try to feed your baby, this is going to create an unhealthy relationship with food and so as you know your child gets older and starts eating food beyond what your baby had as a newborn then your choices around food and the stress or the joy that you feel around food your child will pick up on that and so i think it's really valuable to have a relaxed um kind of view around it to keep your kid educated to just keep it light because um, you don't want to create any kind of issues with food in the future. And the other thing that I would say is just to support your um, kid's immune system. So, you know, that's like some vitamin D3 and K2, fish oil, um, herbs, like leafy, herby things, and uh, colorful plant foods. 
Yeah, the colorful plant foods and variety piece is so huge in terms of just creating a really robust and happy microbiome, which is going to just help to mitigate food sensitivities in general. So I know that that can be a tricky thing for some parents, but that's that's a big one. Um, and I love the advice that you give to your son to just pay attention to your body, watch your own body. It's like it's pretty much going against all of the messages that we receive. Like we have to go outside of ourselves to get information about our bodies and our health. You're basically like, yeah, screw all that. Just go right to the source, right? And I, I, I love that. And it kind of segues into the next question that we we have. Now, this one was written into to me specifically for the podcast, but I saved it knowing that I'd be talking to you because I thought we could have a good conversation around it. So this is from Misa and she asks, I'm always struggling to find the balance between wanting my girls to eat healthy, but also not wanting them to feel deprived or feel isolated when it comes to food. For my youngest, it's easy because she has a lot of food sensitivities, so she can't have any of the junk food at playdates, birthday parties, holidays, school activities, etc. I feel like over time, I turn my head, oh, every time I turn my head, there's some excuse why someone is having or serving junk. But with the oldest, it gets tricky. I try to reserve special treats for birthday and holidays, but as she's getting older and going on more playdates and doing more activities, there's more and more opportunity to eat sugar. Would love to hear your thoughts on how you deal with this and if you have any thought, or if you've thought about this as Hattie gets older. Um, you know, I'll let, I'll let, I have some things to say, but I definitely wanna hear from you first. So I think in terms of sugar, it's worth noting that at four years old, your kid is burning through twice as much sugar as an adult. So a child, children are, are not just small adults. They're, they've got their own thing happening and, they're, and they have very specific needs. And so um, sh the need for sugar is, is real, but the quality of sugar is what is in your control. And um, so I don't also like, I don't, think sugar is bad. Uh, it's just what kind of sugar are you offering your child or what kind of sugar is available. I do think that exposure to sugar early on or sweet foods, I guess, um, and I'm not talking about like fruit, I'm talking about like candy and cake and brownies and those types of things that can kind of shape your child's preferences later on. I know with my first baby, he did not have chocolate until he was four years old. <laughs> and it's funny because I eat dark chocolate probably every day. But, you know, my husband drinks beer and that's my husband's beer. And I eat chocolate and that was my chocolate. And he just never questioned it. Um, and then he had chocolate for his fourth birthday. And it was a chocolate cake. And he ate it, loved it. And, you know, we allow him to have sweets and it's not a big deal. We definitely are selective with the quality, but he went to a party with my husband probably um, like a year and a half ago and they had candy there and they had like a candy bag and they had cupcakes and my husband told me that he just said he doesn't eat it and he doesn't want it and I never told him to say that to people. I, like, I never said don't accept food from other people or don't eat this type of food. I just tell him about the food and I tell him about his body. And uh, I was really happy, I guess. Not that like he rejected the junk food, but I guess just, I don't I guess just that he was like listening to me. Um, I think he was listening to me and it kind of like sunk in. Um, so, and also I, the other point that I wanted to make was that 
he's very he loves sweets like all children do but he doesn't like crave it he doesn't go crazy over it and i think it's because we, he didn't really eat a lot of sweets he ate tons of fruit as a child or a baby but not a lot of like confectionery things um so and then my second child has had more exposure because of my oldest so he has more of like a quote unquote sweet tooth um, and we just don't make a big deal of it. We try to balance it out with complex flavors like sour foods and, and veggies that are kind of bitter. Uh, and that's how we go around that. Um, and then your question, uh, oh, and that was the other thing. Um, seeing like these foods as treats, I think is, I think it's worth explaining to your child that they're not treats, that they're, that they're full of these things that are not good for the body, whether it's like red dye number 40 or um, satch some kind of like fat that that doesn't uh, like the vegetable oils or polyunsaturated, you know, like rancid oils um, that will that aren't good for the body. And you have to explain it according to your child's ability to understand. So um, I used to keep it pretty simple and now I'm more complex with my six-year-old and he gets it. Um, so I think explaining that it's it's not good is, is also something and that it's not a treat um, is is important. So we pulled Hattie. Hattie was getting these like crazy, disgusting colds. She would be up all night coughing and she would like throw up mucus. It was like the gnarliest thing. And we went through like a lot of months of, of this. We did two things. One, I tested her for dairy because that's really the only like mate. She loves dairy. And I'm like, oh, don't let it be dairy. But she did so show signs on a food allergy test um, to dairy sensitivity. We also ripped up all the carpet in our upstairs and replaced it with hardwood floor, which probably significantly reduced any allergens. So one of the two things it has pretty much eradicated those those gnarly colds but now it's like all right i'm kind of dealing with the same thing of like all right she's gluten-free she's dairy-free and how do i navigate these waters so last year she was in preschool just a couple hours a week nothing big now she's in uh, school three full days a week and it's a little bit different because she has peers and she's getting older she's almost five like i said and um i i sort of struggle with the same thing misa of of like all right well how do i do this without pushing her too far into the you know I'm, I'm afraid of food or food is bad. Um, so last night we were at her, uh, her school's art show and it was a potluck and there was just like the, just the, I'm going to try to say this with like as least amount of judgment as possible, but just like the gnarliest food, like Domino's pizza and just like just crazy, crazy food, like all over the place. And my husband and I, she just ran off with her friends. And at one point she came, came over to us and she's like, I just ate a bunch of other people's food with my friends. And she was like, so stoked. And I was like, okay, this is a, a really big moment for me as a mom. I could either like kind of freak out and be like, what did you eat? Like, tell me everything that you ate. Or I could just be like, cool, you had fun with your friends. All right, all right, all right. And I like totally went the cool guy route. And I was like, no big deal, I got this. And then, and I was really proud of myself for doing that, but also totally internally freaking out, like, what did that kid just eat? So a few, like, I don't know, like half an hour later, we were over by the food, the food tables, and I, she was eating some, she like started eating some food, and she was eating pepperoni, and I saw her eating carrots and some tomatoes, and she was like, can I have some celery? And I was like, is this what you were eating before? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Like, 
try not to like make a thing of it. That's the thing. I'm like, I just try to like not make a thing out of it. And I was like, oh, those, those crackers look good. Did you have some of those crackers? And she looked at me like I was like crazy. She's like, mom, crackers have gluten. So it was such a, like a, a relief moment for me because I was like, all right, she doesn't really care. She's just like, oh, I eat this and I don't eat this. We were over at a play date um, and my, my um, friends, so it wasn't really a play date. It was a play date for moms. We went out to brunch and Hattie stayed with her friend and um, her friend's dad who's a good friend of mine. And he was like pulling out all the snacks, like blueberries and hummus and all this good stuff. And he pulled out yogurt and offered it to Hattie. And Hattie's like, no, I don't eat dairy. No, thank you. I don't eat dairy. So it's like, I think sometimes we could add a lot of like stress on ourselves as the moms to that. Like, we're going to like screw these kids up by, by not feeding them like what the societal norm is. But you know, I'm no expert. I only have one and you know, I haven't even been doing this for five years. But as I'm seeing it play out, she doesn't really care that much. Yeah, I think that's so exactly target, like right on. Um, I think kids, they don't really notice and they, and they don't feel deprived as much as we think they will. Um, my mom used to force us, want like push us to get a birthday cake for um, my oldest when he was very little. And we just weren't really feeling it. We didn't eat cake at all. It just wasn't what we did. And she thought he would feel deprived. And um, he, he doesn't even care. He he totally it doesn't remember the time period, um, has had fun with his family and had a good time. And I think that's what kids remember is the the emotions in the moment, not so much things that we think they might remember in terms of like food. And um, so I think that's very true what you just said. That's such a good point. I love what you said about deprivation. Like they don't feel deprived. They're like, you know, bombing around, doing their own thing, having fun. And I think if anything, um, what I learned, especially last night is like, we're teaching her like, you know, I mean, even think back to Christmas and the holidays and stuff like it's we we it's not about the like the crazy food it's it's not even about the presence it's just like about the presence of presence of family together and like that's really what i want to instill in, in her just kind of across the board um or you had mentioned balancing out sweet with sour and bitter flavors especially for your youngest one can you talk about some specific foods that you uh like what do you mean when you say sour and bitter foods for those that might be wondering yeah, so with my youngest, he definitely has more of a sweet tooth, partially because I was working a lot when he was just starting food. And so my husband kind of took over feeding him and uh, he got more just like ready-made packaged style foods. Like, I mean, still good quality, but not something that I would have gone toward like hot dogs, um, which you shouldn't even, I mean, you can give that to, um, a baby but you really shouldn't because of the salt content and you have to make sure that it's a choking hazard <laughs> so um my husband he 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 fed the kids how he uh thought it was good and he's he did a good job with that um but my youngest did get exposed to a lot of salty and sweet foods so very uh strong flavors and so when he started working again and i started staying more at home I noticed more so than I did before that my toddler was really picky around food. So I immediately started to give him lots of coconut water kefir to kind of like 
help him have more sour foods because that really uh i in my experience that helps to kind of balance out the palate and it's just it exposes them to more flavors and so that will encourage adventurous eating later on so coconut water kefir was our go-to as um and also sauerkraut and just like tangy sour foods and then with bitter foods that's really plant foods and um he's still very picky with plant foods um he'll usually chew and then spit out and i'm just i work on it every day no big deal but i'm always offering him like broccoli and just different like foods that i know my older kid ate when he was his age um to try to get him to just be more open to it also smoothies can be really great um for that or I, I also um make this like sauce it's called my magical green sauce and i do um do i do spring onions cilantro coconut aminos uh apple cider vinegar and olive oil and i blend that up and it's um it's like tangy it's got those bitter herby notes um and it's also really delicious and my kids love it so there's that i just like little things like that um i think can be helpful and my youngest is two years old right now so we're working on it in a very low stress kind of way okay cool all right next question is how to transition older kids so this is ages seven and ten onto a more whole foods diet so i would just cook with them that's my number one tip and i think that's a pretty common tip um the other thing that i was thinking is watching cooking shows together i know that when i was in my 20s i did not cook at all um everything i bought was in a package and uh it wasn't until i started watching the food network that i started cooking more and i think it's because you see like things coming together for example, um, when I was probably 23 or 24, I made a soup because I saw my friend make a soup and I basically just put a bunch of vegetables and some water into a pot and I and it tasted horrible. And I was so disappointed and I didn't understand why. And then, you know, if you watch a show, you see, oh, you do the onions and you get some like color and some flavor and there's layers to the soup. It's not like you just put everything together. And so, um, sometimes that can help and there's that master chef junior show which is with kids um, i think that might be fun if your family watches tv um, and beyond cooking i think shopping is part of it too so just taking them with you to be part of the process uh, that can be a time to for them to learn about food and just to share the joy of food and uh, like we've been talking about throughout the show is just to keep things keeps things flexible and so take out the shoulds and take out the dogma and the rigidity and just kind of have fun and enjoy food together i love that you brought up cooking shows because i used to binge watch food network i was obsessed with emerald Lagasse, um and would just like do my like in high school would just do my homework with the cooking network on the food network on and I feel like a lot of people are like well how'd you learn to cook or why do you love to cook I mean my mom loves to cook so there's always you know that but it, I swear it was from watching cooking shows um it really teaches you what to do all right next question is from Becca Leah for any advice for vegetarian gluten-free homes with a baby and a toddler and I like this question because you talk so much Megan about um meaty minerals you call them 
and like baby like nutrient deficiencies and how to get them in and you talk a lot about bone marrow and kind of these like sort of obscure at least in our culture obscure like meat foods so how do you navigate the waters um as a vegetarian you... definitely i have a lot of um empathy for people who eat a plant-based diet i was vegan for a while and vegetarian for a longer while so i understand what that's like or that choice i guess i can understand that choice um and i do talk a lot about meat and meaty minerals because those foods are the most nutrient-dense foods that are in your home or in a home and they are the ones that baby should be eating because your little one doesn't really eat much um, during that first year especially typically i mean some babies do but usually um, it's very very small amounts and so you want to pack the most nutrition the most nutrition that you can into each bite and especially minerals like zinc and iron those are really important especially iron for your baby's development so there are ways around this um, i have thought about it so for um dha which is typically from fish you can do um some algal some 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 oil from algae so it's called algal oil um you can also do spirulina for iron uh, it's pretty well absorbed and spirulina is also a prebiotic so it feeds the good bacteria in your baby's gut so there's that um, and you want to usually i would uh, really amp up your vitamin c or your baby's vitamin c intake because that helps with the absorption of non-heme iron um, i would also really go hard on the eggs and the dairy um, assuming that you can do those and you're not vegan uh, because eggs and dairy have choline and that's really important for your baby's development um, and also it's really interesting that if there's any iron deficiency during pregnancy or infancy um, that can affect development and choline it's been found will actually offset some of those effects it kind of acts as like a buffer um, and that's because it uh, affects the expression of genes. So there's a really cool thing that choline can do. So definitely uh, add in eggs and dairy and then herbs. Um, you know, there are, so we just talked about adaptogens at the beginning of the show and there's two adaptogens. I don't know if Aaron knows, um, if you know of Dongue, that's a less common one than astragalus, but those two herbs, which are adaptogens in um, our current culture, um, they're actually in Chinese medicine, you put them together and they're really great at um, nourishing iron and blood. So um, it's been found in research that they can help with iron deficiency anemia. Um, and, you know, you could go to an acupuncturist and get those. Um, I don't know if there's any Dongue, which is spelled D-A-N-G-G-U-I. Um, and it's spelled other ways too, like it's uh, Dong Kwai, I think is another one, but I don't know if that I've seen that as common as a stragglist. So those are some things that I would do. I've seen that written out and never knew how to pronounce it. And I was definitely not saying it right, but that's, that's awesome. So thank you for that. All right. The nerdy yogi asks purees versus baby led feeding, also known as baby led weaning. Is there a chill way to do both? So some people say that if you do purees and you do 
baby led weaning, you're not actually doing baby led weaning. Um, that's it's there's a very like kind of strict technique, I guess, to it. Um, if you follow my stuff at all, you know that I do both and I talk about them as both. <laughs> um, and you know, I mean, obviously also from the show, you can probably tell that I'm not, not super into dogma or rules. Um, I think things should be customized to each individual and each baby. So there's that. So what's the most important thing with baby led weaning, right? So why do people do it? People do it because one, it's easy. It's easy, easier to do it than purees because you don't have to make it as much. You can just pull it off the table. Um, but the other reason why parents do it is because they think it's healthier for baby. They think it's healthier because there's research that shows that it um, is linked to reduced risk of obesity, for example. And there's something else that um, has the exact same correlations as baby led weaning and it's called responsive feeding and responsive feeding is talked about throughout there's so much research on it um, whereas baby led weaning is more uh new and there's a lot of papers on it but they're more like 2015-16 um so it's kind of a new thing um but responsive feeding is the exact same principles and i would encourage parents to more be responsive in how they feed baby. And I have a blog post on this and I'm going to write about it more too because I think it's a really important topic and it gets out of kind of like the structure of baby led weaning. And it's really just about responding to your child and um, interpreting cues and not pushing food, not being over um, like indulgent with food, um, not using food to soothe and you know if your child is done they're done no big deal if they had like one little bite if they didn't have anything to eat and they're done they're done you don't push food on your baby and um i think that's really the most important thing as opposed to baby led weaning versus purees oh that's cool i'll definitely link to that in the show notes that uh that article that you wrote i'm like giggling to myself here because so much of what i do is i just I call it lazy parenting. <laughs> like, I don't know. I haven't read a book about this. I just am just taking a lazy way out. And and then I then I hear something that like backs up my lazy parenting. That's basically what I did with Hattie's food. I'm like, ah, whatever you want, kid. Whatever you want. Um, all right. So here's the next question. It's from Sarah J G51. And it's pretty straightforward, so I'm sure you can answer this pretty quickly calcium for dairy-free kids. I can't get enough spinach in her and she's boycotting smoothies too. So what should I do? Okay, so for spinach, um, I actually don't love spinach for babies and that's because it's really, 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 really high in oxalate and oxalate binds to iron. And I am all about the iron for babies because usually there's a lot of babies that are iron deficient. It's really common. So I don't love spinach. Um, and then, so, where do you get calcium for babies? I would do sardines. Um, the sardines with like the bones in the fish, you can actually crush those, they're super soft, and they are full of calcium, uh, vitamin D, omega-3s, they're fabulous. All right, that was easy. Um, I've been talking about sardines a lot lately. I, <laughs> I posted about, this is so bad. I'm not gonna name any names, you know who you are. I posted about them and then, um, somebody went out and bought them and ate a can and almost 
pooped or maybe she did poop herself in the car. So sorry about that. They're slippery little fish. Uh, but if you have constipation, hey, there you go. Try try to lube yourself up with some sardines. Okay, last question. It's kind of a long one. Um, so bear with me here. It's It, it wasn't a, a Megan-specific question, but I, I want to hear Megan's thoughts on it. So she's writing into me and Kyle. Before I get started, I want to thank you for the awesome content you share through your podcast. I discovered functional nutrition about a month ago and I listened to at least one a day. Just can't get enough. Okay, so my question has to do with body odor. I'm currently 11 months postpartum and still breastfeeding my baby. Since I had her, I've noticed an increase in sweating and major BO. I just can't seem to shower enough throughout the day and my deodorant isn't cutting it. I make my own deodorant, aluminum-free baking soda, arrowroot powder, coconut oil, essential oils like tea tree, peppermint, lavender. I'm wondering if hormones associated to breastfeeding are contributing to my different and more pungent smell or if it's something diet related. I have a pretty healthy diet, but don't cut anything from my diet, meaning I do consume sugar, dairy, wheat in moderation, but also eat plenty of fruits, veg, protein, fats, as well as tons of water. My hunch is telling me it's an issue deep down that I need to work on instead of just trying a new deodorant, but would love your thoughts on this. Thanks a million, keep up the good work, Leah. So before I dive in with my functional medicine perspective, do you have any thoughts on this, Megan? The first thing that comes to mind is to try magnesium oil. Uh, it's amazing as a deodorant. I used to use this one magnesium oil by a company called Omika. I don't, I haven't seen it lately on Amazon, but it was with uh, lavender hydrosol, and I would just spray that under my armpits, and it worked like a dream. Um, and I think now lately, I've been seeing uh, deodorants with magnesium magnesium, I don't know if it's the oil, but that in them, that might be worth adding to your homemade one or just trying a different one, uh, even though that's, you said that that's not what you want to do. Um, and then I also, uh, I think it might be interesting to let you know that um, there are like odors associated in Chinese medicine with different um, like organ imbalances. Um, <clears throat> So kidneys are responsible for aging. Uh, they're, they're in Chinese medicine, they're the, the organs that store your essence or your power, like the thing that you, that burns out in the end, like that's your, your kidney system. And that's linked to putrid odor. And if you think of like an aging person or an old person, um, you can kind of like that putrid smell. I don't know if that, if you can like recall it, but I know that smell pretty well and that makes sense. And then there's other smells associated with the different organ systems. And I'll just let you know that um, rancid smell or kind of like goatish, um, that's linked to the liver. Um, a scorched or burned smell, that's linked to the heart. A, uh, a sweet or fragrant smell is linked to the spleen. And then kind of a rank or rotten smell is linked to the lung. So. Um, that might help to discern what could be going on. Whoa, that's really cool. I didn't know any of that stuff. Um, that, you know, my, my take on it is we can experience different, um, smells through hormonal shifts. Um, I certainly remember being quite pungent when I was breastfeeding. Um, and that, you know, you're still breastfeeding, you're 11 months postpartum. I feel like in today's world we're like 
once once you hit six weeks, you're like no longer postpartum. You're just supposed to like go live your life as as if you never had a baby. But I mean, 11 months postpartum is still definitely postpartum. In fact, I remember getting a hormone test when I was just weaning Hattie. So it was probably, I was like two and a half years postpartum and my hormones looked like I was still pregnant. So my hormones were like still all over the place two and a half years later. So don't discount that. I mean, you had mentioned that in your question, Leah, and I would, I would really think about that. And if you're asymptomatic, if it's just the smell and you're, nothing else is wrong and you feel great, it might not be something to really worry about. You might just need to kind of like wait and see. Um, if, but you, you also said that in your gut, there's something else going on. Like something tells you, your hunch is telling you that something else is going on. I think sometimes we can get overzealous with our health and like, oh, this one, we can become hypervigilant with our body sometimes. Like, especially if we learn in, a lot about health. We're like, oh, this thing means this. And I just don't want to, I don't want you to go down that rabbit hole if you, if you don't need to. Um, but if there are other, are other things going on, some things that come to my mind are, you know, stress. So if there's, um, we have different types of sweat glands and some sweat glands produce more of the smellier sweat. And that's often associated with, with somebody under stress, um, which could be really common during the postpartum period. Some adrenal craziness going on. Um, so if you're feeling fatigued or um, having a lot of muscle ache and just like can't get out of bed or um, yeah, like that deep fatigue, that might be something to look into. We talked about thyroid or earlier, that could be another thing with the hyperthyroidism um, or even Graves disease, which is autoimmune condition that can be associated with excessive sweating. And since I just talked about how commonplace thyroiditis is postpartum that might be something to look into again if you it, go back to those symptoms if you're having any of them for sure um, but those that's really my take on it it might just be you're just a little extra sweaty um all right so those are the questions that we have for you megan thank you so much for all of your wisdom um please tell us a little bit more about what you've got going on the services you provide and where people can find you. Thank you so much for having me here. Um, so you can find me at Megan, MeganGarcia.com. Uh, and that's where all of my content lives. And that's where you can sign up for my herb class, which is coming up. And if you don't sign up uh, before this before I think it's the 16th and the 17th, it will be available as a full program. So definitely do check it out. I'm really excited about it because I feel like it's going to help a lot of parents and I can't wait. And herbs have helped our family so much. So I really am excited to share that um, for parents who feel kind of like confused or uncertain or hopeless or, you know, they don't feel empowered. I really want to empower parents um, when it comes to your baby being sick. And um, there's also tons of information about feeding baby, about nutrition. I have a whole program on that as well, which is uh, really fun. Uh, we have a Facebook group and there's a lot of good conversation that happens around it. Now, Instagram is, I am on Facebook and Instagram, but Instagram is where I share just like cool studies that I come across or um, just things that I'm thinking about in the story section usually. And um, I got a lot of DMs there. You can definitely contact me there or through email. And, um, and I always love hearing from people. 
yes, your stories are an absolute wealth of knowledge. Um, so every parent go follow Megan right now and buy one of her programs and sign up for this upcoming event because I know it's going to be awesome. All right, you guys, I will check you next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. Take care of you.